We all know that Peter Griffin family guy gif of him unable to work some blinds. And if you don't, I highly recommend you check it out because this gif is always associated with the frustrations of CSS. You change one thing and then something completely different breaks. And why do people have these issues? How can you improve your CSS skills? And what are the key concepts that you need to understand in order to write clean, maintainable styles? There are three fundamental building blocks for every website, HTML, which is the content, JavaScript, which adds interactivity, and CSS, which makes your websites look really great. So today we're going to talk about all the nuances of CSS, what it is, how it works, and how to get better at it. This week will be a two-part episode, but instead of having to wait another week to hear part two, you're going to get a bonus episode this Thursday. So with that, let's just jump right in. Welcome to the Ladybug Podcast. I'm Kelly. I'm Allie. I'm Emma. And I'm Lindsay, and we're debugging the tech industry. Let's kick things off with the pain points. CSS is great, but there are definitely some pain points that come with writing CSS. So let's just kind of talk about the the pain points that we experience. One of the biggest things that I see is that, especially in large code bases, it's like nearly impossible to remove styling, right? So as you're trying to maintain these like large applications, you generally just don't remove styles. You just add more, you know, importance onto things. And so it's really hard to remove code. And then you get really confused and like don't understand why none of your styles that you're trying to write anew are are not being applied. Hard to remove code is one of the biggest things that I found when people write overly specific CSS. If you remove something, things break. Or if you make, if you write your CSS in a way that becomes almost intermingled with each other, that every single time you change something, something else breaks. And it makes it really difficult to clean up code as well. And on the same note of cleaning up code, it could be difficult to find what you're looking for if there's no commonality in the way that you're you're naming your your IDs and classes. So the naming collisions is definitely a, a pain point that I've experienced, especially when you're working with a team of developers who are all touching the code. Totally. Especially when you have your CSS broken into a bunch of different files or you're using a styling library or something along those lines, finding where a style is coming from and either undoing that or adding to it can be kind of a challenge as well sometimes. When I had a lot more trouble with CSS when I first got got started as a web developer, and that's because I didn't have any front-end developers that I was working with. So I think also not having any mentorship to know the fundamentals, and I was just hacking at things and hoping it worked. And quite frankly, like, yes, playing around with something and exploring is really good, but when you don't know the fundamentals of CSS and you're playing around with it, you can easily break things. So you think you fix something and then a client comes in and is like this new thing was introduced. <laughs> yeah, I just think it's funny because when you compare CSS with other areas of web development, it typically gets like the short end of the stick as being something that's overlooked or deemed as easy, right? But writing efficient CSS can can be a little bit more complex. And I think with that, we should just jump right into, you know, how do we actually write CSS? So Ali, can you explain kind of the syntax of CSS? Can I put one more difficulty? I think something that especially back in the day, it was really difficult, was positioning things. And so there are always these viral tweets about how hard it is to center things and all that. And that has all gotten way easier more recently. But I definitely still think that 
laying things out on the page is like the hardest part of CSS and can be a huge challenge. So I wanted to add that before we get started. But that being said, let's dive into the syntax. So the first piece of CSS is selectors. And essentially what we're doing with selectors is grabbing an element from the HTML in order to apply some sort of style to it. So we're telling the CSS which elements to actually apply styles to. Sometimes this will be every single element on the page. Other times we only want certain elements to be styled. So for example, if we only wanted certain paragraphs to be bolded or certain headers to have certain colors and other ones to have other ones, or we wanted to lay out certain elements on the page, we can use something called classes, which we'd write into our HTML to differentiate between those different items that we want styled different ways. So. You can use these classes, you can use the elements themselves as sel and select those to apply styles to. You can also use IDs. We could probably talk about this later, but I have always been given the advice to not use IDs for CSS because using IDs, you're just adding styles to one individual element rather than a group of them. So it's less, we talk about dry encoding, so don't repeat yourself. And so it would be less dry and it can lead to unmaintainable CSS. But I don't know. Do you, do any of you have opinions on that? Uh, I totally do. And I don't know if this is a right or a wrong opinion, but I always had the mindset that IDs were not meant for CSS and IDs were meant for JavaScript and targeting things in JavaScript and having landmarks on the page for your HTML. So I, I never really thought of them as styling mechanisms. And I thought of them more as if you need a landmark in your HTML to, so for example, you want to have uh, a link in your HTML. So index.html or pound something like some link or whatever, you can link to that within your HTML. So I always use it that way. Or if I'm targeting something super specific in JavaScript, those are the two times I use the ID the most. And I very, very rarely use them for styling. I don't remember the last time I used it for styling. Yeah, very much agree there where I don't use IDs for styling whatsoever because then you're only styling one element. But I guess it's good to just say that you could use IDs for CSS if like you really wanted to for some reason, but generally not the best practice and not something that we necessarily recommend. And it really quickly, if you're completely new to CSS or web development, the difference between the two is that classes can be applied to multiple elements versus IDs can only be, they should only be allowed to be added to one. Like nothing is going to stop you from adding it to multiple elements, but it'll only grab the first element and apply that style. Yeah. And just as a quick note, if you have multiple IDs, it's usually going to screw up things with accessibility because you usually use IDs to like link things on forms like associate form labels and whatnot but we could always that's a tangent and i'm not going to go too deep into that but just it, there's a lot like you technically could you shouldn't though yeah totally agree there so now we've talked about selectors so again selectors are how we decide what elements are actually styled in our css what we're applying styles to the next piece of this are declarations. So these are the actual styles that are going to be applied to that element that were selected. And these are essentially anything within the curly braces when you see a CSS selector. Within those declarations, there are properties and values. So properties are the type of style that we're applying. Some examples of this would be color, background color, text, 
there's a lot of different things that go into text, like font, text spacing, and size. But these are the kind of categories of things that we're styling. And then there's values. So the values is the, are the actual styles that we're applying to an element. So this text is blue. This text is 20 pixels tall. All those sorts of things uh, go into values. So together, a property and value make up a declaration. There's also shorthand for CSS. So instead of declaring each property separately for things like margin or border, all that, you can combine multiple things and that will be more efficient. So one that you may see pretty frequently is margin colon zero auto. And what that's going to do is essentially center something on a page. So instead of doing margin top zero, margin bottom zero, margin left auto, margin right auto, this margin zero auto is saying that on the top and the bottom add zero margin and then on the sides add automatic, which will center it on the page. So the shorthand is more efficient, both for you as the developer and the browser will also handle this in a more efficient way as well. And we'll talk more about border and margin and all that down the road in the same episode. And a quick note with that too is you can't make up values or properties. Like they're like I, I get that question a lot when I'm teaching um is that we basically we can't just say, oh, we're gonna make up text color. That's not a property. We need to use color. So so we could put all this together. So if we wanted to make all the first level headers on the page blue, we could select the h1 that would be the selector the declaration would be everything in between the braces so any styles that we're applying the property would be the color and then the value would be blue so that just puts all these pieces together and that's awesome so thanks for that overview on the syntax of css but we haven't fully defined what exactly a cascade is and since css stands for cascading style sheets let's go ahead and do that so the cascade is an algorithm that defines how we combine property values um, from all these different sources, right? And it's all governed by this thing called CSS specificity. And a lot of web developers who maybe aren't, in, you know, super uh, versed in CSS might not realize that there is a mathematical formula behind how all of these styles are applied. So yes, specificity is the set of rules applied to determine which one, which style wins, right? The more specific your, your style selectors, the higher point value is going to accrue. So if you take a piece of paper and you write down four lines on it, it's a little cheat sheet for how you can actually calculate the specificity. And there are three main buckets of specificity that your code will fall into. So the first bucket is type selectors and pseudo elements, which we will talk about a little bit later. So examples of this might be an H1 selector or the you'll see a double colon uh, with the word before. That's a pseudo element. And these are the first bucket uh, of, of selectors or of specificity. The second is class selectors, attribute selectors and pseudo classes. So examples of class selector would be dot cat. So if you apply a class to an HTML element. An attribute selector, you'd get these really hard brackets, and inside it would say type equals radio, for example. And this will select all of the radio elements on the page. And then the third pseudo classes, you might see colon hover, right? So these are classes that are, are we'll talk about a little bit later, uh, pseudo classes. 
And the last big bucket that your specificity can fall into is ID selectors. So if you have an ID on your element, which we talked about briefly before, like a pound sign cat, uh, this is you know the most specific in terms of selectors. But universal selectors or combinators, which we'll talk about later, they actually don't have an effect on your specificity. So that was the last point of this. But when we talk about inline styles, which is also a heated topic, inline styles directly in your HTML will always override any styles you've declared in your external style sheet. And this is generally not good practice. You really want to keep things where they're defined. And then, of course, we see all of these, you know, memes and everything about this important, right? <laughs> important overrides all other styles. And again, this is bad practice. And it's generally done because developers have a hard time understanding specificity and working with it. If you want to learn a little bit more about CSS specificity and actually how to go calculate it, I wrote an article that you can go reference and we'll link it down in the show notes. But let's move on to the box model, right? Because that kind of governs uh, how things are laid out on a page. So Allie, can you help us understand this box model? Totally. So CSS operates within the box model. So first you're going to have your content. So your text, that's what your content is. And then a lot of times you'll want to add spacing around that content so that it has more space to it. So if it's a button, you want to add space around the text so it's a little bit bigger. And that's going to be your padding. Outside your padding, then you have a border around that. You can color that border different colors. You can make it a different pattern, etc. And then outside that border, you're going to have the margin. And that's the spacing between your element and the other elements on the page. So making it so that your headers are far away from your button or something along those lines. So that's kind of a high level overview of what the box model looks like. I think with the box model, something that helped me a lot is actually understanding the border because I remember using, not being sure when to use padding and when to use margin to space things out, but understanding that that border is between them really helped me because I'm like, oh, it's within that like little, that little uh, box and then everything outside is the margin. And I think, too, if you forget this, you can always open your browser dev tools. And actually, like if you go to Chrome, if you scroll all the way to the bottom, they've got the box model and it shows you all the values that are being applied. It's a great way if you keep forgetting, because like you, Lindsay, I completely messed that up every time. Yeah, I th we'll do a screenshot and put that in the show notes so you know what we're talking about. Totally. I also have a long blog post that has a lot of these with like visual cues and stuff. And so that might help, too, because... Podcasts aren't the most visual format. So let's go ahead and get talking about pseudo elements and classes. Emma was talking about them a little bit earlier, but we're going to go into slightly uh, deeper dive and define the special cases for an element. So first, let's talk about the difference between pseudo classes and pseudo elements. So pseudo classes is a keyword added to a selector that specifies a special state to the selected element. So for example, uh, you've seen hover, or maybe you haven't, but uh, hover is a state. So when you hover over an element, when you focus on an element using your keyboard, there is one for radio buttons and checkboxes that's called checked. So anything, there's a huge list, which we'll also include in the show notes of all the different types of state, but basically it covers all of those. There's also the not selector. There's so many, but the best thing to understand is that a lot of times they are the state of the element, whether it's a, a child or a 
like hovering over something or if something's like an active link and stuff like that. So then we have pseudo elements, which are selectors that apply styles to parts of your document content scenarios where there isn't HTML. So you may have seen something that's like uh, colon, colon before and colon, colon after. Those are probably the most common. And we use those to create little elements that aren't technically part of the HTML document. So that's a quick, quick overview. But any questions on those from, I think the learning what the su- difference between pseudo elements and pseudo classes was always super helpful for me. What's a good use case for a pseudo element? Like when would I use before or after? So I actually do this a lot when I'm making accessible uh, checkboxes and accessible radio buttons. So I actually combine those. I use the before element and the after element and check. So I use both pseudo classes and pseudo elements. So a big thing that happens is people will create like little, they will kind of hack the input um checkbox and they'll make their own and they'll use the before element and then they'll use the after element when it's checked. So they can use the checked element to make that checked style a little bit different. Then they can also use the focus style. So when you're focused on that new pseudo element that you can still be able to see what you're focused on. So it's pretty cool stuff. So awesome. Let's move on to combinators. Emma, do you want to take this one on? Yeah, so this is probably something that you've seen in a CSS file, and I had no idea there was actually a name for it. So combinators allow you to select specific elements um, within your HTML document, right? And if you've ever seen like a greater than sign or a plus sign or a tilde or a space, these are all examples of combinators. So a space is is the most um, widely used, right? So we use it to select a descender. So let's say you've got a div, a space, and then a paragraph. And this is going to select all paragraphs that are living inside of a div, whether that's a direct child or a grandchild. If you have a paragraph inside of a div, it's going to select it. The greater than symbol is called a child selector. So if you have div, then a greater than symbol, and then a paragraph or a P, it's going to select all elements that are immediate children inside of this div. So all paragraphs that are immediate children means top level, right? So let's say I have a div and then a section, and then inside of that section I have a P. It's not going to select that because it's not an immediate child, right? So again, greater than symbol is a child selector. Then we've got the plus sign. So the plus sign is a combinator for adjacent sibling selectors. So what does that mean, right? So let's say we have div, plus, and then p. This is going to select all paragraphs that are adjacent siblings of a div, so immediately following. So if you're in your HTML document, and let's say we've got a section, and inside of the section we have div and p at the same level, it's going to select those. And lastly, we've got our tilde. This is that little squiggly line that you also might not have known how to word. And this is the general sibling selector. So div tilde p selects all elements inside of uh, that are siblings of a div. So combinators can be a little bit confusing, but I hope that was a good like overview of them. Uh, I don't know. Do you guys use combinators day to day? Like all the time. Yes. Yeah. Combinators were they were one of the most confusing things for me to learn and kind of understand the difference between them. But now that I understand them, I totally use them to my advantage. In an example of a, a useful use case here is when you have a, a multi-tier drop down menu, you have a lot of different 
uh, elements for like link for lists. So you may have a UL element inside of an LI element inside of a UL element and being able to style those differently because, you know, your, your primary navigation may rest horizontally, whereas the drop-down menus are going to rest vertically. So being able to specify which style should apply to a certain level is really useful. Yeah. Also, I was talking about like the pseudo classes and pseudo elements before. I also, with the checkboxes, uh, the custom checkboxes and custom radio buttons, I always use the plus sign um, for the uh, adjacent sibling selector to target the label and create a pseudo element on the label. So that's uh, that's another way I go into it and using them and all combining the all the little tricks into one solid thing. So that's really interesting because I never use that one. I never use the adjacent sibling selector. I feel like I always use the child selector or the direct descendant selector. But just as a reminder, like these things don't uh, contribute to specificity rules. So like if if you think that they do, uh, they don't. And that was actually news to me. Like I forgot about that. And so if you see it, it's just to really help you select specific elements and, you know, and apply styles that way. But it really does not affect the specificity. My favorite resource for learning this is called CSS Diner, and they have different things on plates, and you can select them using these different selectors. So I guess selectors as a whole, but also combinators. So I highly, highly, highly recommend that resource for kind of gamifying learning CSS selectors. Yeah, I love playing games to learn CSS too, because it just makes it way more fun, and and for some reason it cements it in my brain a little bit better. Cool. So we're going to talk about positioning now. And it's very cleverly named because it specifies where something is positioned on a page. There what? are, I know, <laughs> right? Everyone's favorite subject is positioning. <laughs> it's something very, very, very useful to learn. So the default position is static. So if there's no specified position in the CSS, it's static. It just means that it's just going in its normal order. The next is absolute, and position absolute is where it's relative to the nearest positioned ancestor. So if you have another parent's element or grandparent element that has a specified position relative, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, the absolute positioning will be relative to that previous ancestor. If there is no other element on the page that has a specified position, it defaults to the document body. What's really useful for that, I think, uh, is positioning tooltips. Like that's one of the hardest things to do is position a tooltip against its parent. And that is a perfect use case, right? So you would define, let's say we've got a div that is the parent wrapping it that has like the little icon you hover over and you would set position relative on that parent. And then you would set position absolute on the tooltip itself and it'll position itself, you know, against this parent. And that's a really great way to lay out tooltips. Absolutely. And it's also a really great way to lay out uh, drop down menus and also styled input buttons as well as as Lindsay was discussing. So the next one is a position relative. So that's going to be position relative to its normal position. Uh, Do you have a good way of explaining that one? Yeah. So like if you want, let's say we have an image uh, on a page and we're like, "Mm, I wish it was 50 pixels to the left of, you know, where it is in the in the casket or in the dom. Right. Uh, Then you you could just say 50 pixels left. That's where you can set the left position to be negative 50 pixels. And relative to where its natural flow is in the DOM, it will position, you know, left negative 50 pixels or right. And you can set top and bottom. And it's just relative to where it naturally would display in the page. 
That's interesting. I never really thought of using top left, bottom and right with a relative uh, positioning. I always think about doing it with absolute. You know what I use this for? I use this for uh, like sidebars that are collapsible. So like if I have a sidebar with a hamburger menu, one way to do this, and I don't know that this is the most performant way, but instead of changing the width of this element from zero to let's say 350 pixels when you click the menu, that maybe I don't think that is as performant as changing the actual like transforming the actual left position of it, right? So you could say like, okay, in its natural state, when the menu is hidden, the sidebar is hidden, uh, I want left to be negative 350 pixels so it's not visible. And then when I click this hamburger menu, set left to zero, right? So that's where maybe uh, a relative positioning could come in handy. It's a really good use case. And also brings me to the final one, which is position fixed, which is relative to the viewport itself. So when an element is has position fixed associated with it, you will scroll down the page and it's still going to stay in the same spot on the viewport. And, you know, uh, Emma, you talked about using this for, for sidebars as well. I actually use position fixed for sidebars, too. Because if it's like a full uh, like a full height sidebar that just slides in, you can you know still scroll down the page and everything kind of stays in place. So I, I use that one pretty frequently as well. Yeah, and so one thing that confused me when I started looking into positioning was a the difference between absolute and fixed and when you would use one over the other, and then b the fact that it removes it from the document flow that really confused me. What does that mean? It basically means that if I set position fixed on a, a nav bar, let's say we have a top fully spanned nav bar, and I set position fixed, it's going to take it out of the document flow. So if we have a main content section underneath it it's going to pretend like that nav or the header is not there at all. And it's going to position itself at the very top of the document. So fixed will keep it in the same exact spot, regardless of how far down you scroll and it removes it from the document flow. In contrast, position absolute again, removes it from the flow. So all the, you know, the sibling elements pretend like it's not there when they're laying themselves out, but it's going to scroll with the page. Great. So one last thing to talk about with positioning, you know, when you're moving these elements around, it's important to talk about Z-index too. Allie, do you want to explain what that is? So normally when we're positioning things on the page, we're doing the X and Y axis. So we're moving things around horizontally and vertically. But also sometimes we want to stack elements on top of each other. And so Z-index is used for working on the Z and Z-axis or stacking one element on top of another uh, in kind of that direction. So if you want something to be displayed on top of something else, you would use a Z-index. And kind of tangential to all of this, I really learned all this really well by building the CSS art that you may see on CodePen or whatever, where people are taking CSS to its total extreme and building art with it. And that really helped me learn all these positioning things really well because you have to do that in order to build these CSS art things. So something that might be fun to try out. Cool. Lindsay, you wanna talk about the different display attributes? Sure, so there's three different uh, or three different display properties. We have grid and flex, which we're going to talk about later, but we're going to talk about the difference between block, inline and inline block. So block is respects all of the inline properties and forces a line break after the element. So for example, if we have an H1, uh, it defaults to display block and that takes up the entire width if the width is not specified. 
So display in line is the opposite of that. So those are uh, like things like links. When you have a link within a uh, paragraph, it does not take up its own line. It flows within the document. It's a lot about document flow. So it respects the left and the right margin and padding, but not the top and bottom. So that used to trip me up a lot and it cannot have a width and height. It is its natural width and height of whatever it automatically would be. And it allows other elements to sit left and right of them. So inline block is a little bit of a combination of both. So you can take, you can have the padding on the margin on the top and the bottom, and it allows it to flow within the document, but it still has those uh, margins and paddings. So this is really helpful for things like navigations um, when you want to have like a bigger on the top and the bottom navigation, so bigger buttons in the navigation. But yeah, so those are the three main things. Did I miss anything? No, I think that's good. I think um, maybe one example of where you might see inline block uh, is when you have an image and you want like the text to flow around it, for example. In those instances, you could you'd set like display inline block and then it'll still allow you to set, you know, width and height and have all these properties, but it will be able to sit next to other elements on a page. And this used to be the way that we positioned things in the UI, right? And like you said, we will be talking about Flexbox and Grid in, in the next part, which have really revolutionized the way that we d lay out elements on a page, which was previously like super painful to do. We didn't even talk about floats, right? Like I don't honestly know how to use floats appropriately because like they're so painful to use. But yeah, I'm just... Uh, what do you think? Do you guys still use floats or? <laughs> I think the biggest thing is uh, before we had all these advocates making CSS better, we had to sort of hack things. So with um, float left, like floating is not meant to be for layout. Uh, floating is meant to like kind of have something wrap within something. So if you have like an image float left, like the text will be wrapping around it sort of like in copy when you see like that first image and then things start wrapping around it. So that was never meant for layout. And that's why we had to have hacks to clear things because when like, if you ever heard of the clear fix hack, like that's always something you had to have after the float, you know? So I think because like we've had so much advocacy for CSS, a lot of this has become, become so much better. Well, do you remember when we used to have to position things with tables, which has so many problems? I know, Lindsay, you're probably like freaking out right now. <laughs> yeah. But I'm like back in the day, like you had to position that maybe, I don't know, did you have to or did people like not know how to use flow or? <laughs> yeah, it's I think it's just like as the web has evolved and gotten better, there's been become better ways of building those things into the browser and how to uh, let's say how to make layouts a lot more friendly to things. Cause with, the problem with tables is a data table is not meant to display, like it's not meant to lay out things. It's meant to order data like and lay out data. So not layout display. So. And it's important to note that as, as CSS is evolving, so are the resources that are available to learn what's new and the more up-to-date recommendations of how to approach something. So definitely look out for, you know, buying or, or taking a look at free resources that are a little bit more modern. And thankfully, there is no shortage of 
finding modern resources. And we'll be linking to a number of them in our show notes. One thing I do want to mention, just quickly talking about the fact that, you know, all web browsers like add their own style formatting to HTML uh, in order to make it readable. But not all browsers are treating HTML the same way, right? So this is a problem. And as a result, you get this inconsistency across browsers. And I just quickly want to mention, like if you've heard of Reset and Normalize, these are really great tools for kind of like resetting and normalizing uh, the way that browsers are, are going to be rendering your, your elements and your styles, right? So really quickly, um, Reset is a is a template that wipes out all built-in styling for HTML. And then, you know, you can cut customize this and, and add in your preferred styling choices. And then normalize actually removes these inconsistencies for HTML, but instead of removing everything, it's just going to preserve some some of the normal or useful defaults, right? So we need to be careful when we develop that we're not just working in one browser and testing our, our CSS and HTML in one browser. If you're building a robust product that many people are going to be using, you got to make sure that you test it in all browsers and potentially even use a tool like Reset and Normalize to make sure that things are, are consistent. And it's not only testing in browsers, it's testing in different viewport widths as well. Like the iPhone 7, is, it maxes out at 320 pixels in width. And making sure, you know, we, we talk in depth about making sure your website is responsive with, you know, mobile first design and the number of customers and visitors to your website who are browsing from a mobile device versus using a desktop browser. So, you know, it's very important to keep in mind when you're when you're building out your site, you know, test in different browsers, but also test in different devices as well. Can I use is another great resource as well for checking to see if certain CSS things work in different browsers too. Right. Just because something is supported in Chrome does not mean it's supported in Opera or, or Safari, right? And to that point, I just want to say like one of the things that really helped me in my dev career was learning how to use the developer tools in the browser. The big one, so Chrome and Firefox each have their own benefits. I still always go back to Chrome for like positioning and, and figuring out why like my spacing isn't isn't working because the box model that they have in their developer tools is incredible. So I recommend learning how to use that uh, appropriately. And yeah, that, that's if I can leave you with one tip, it's learn how to use your browser developer tools to help debug your CSS. Absolutely. That's probably how I started learning about all these concepts that we talked about here today is through the uh, browser developer tools. Like that's how I learned what margin was. That's how I learned about the box model. That's how I learned about the display inline and display inline block and all that stuff. So definitely recommend playing around because quite frankly, the best way to explore CSS is to explore. That was very profound. <laughs> Beautiful. And on that note, we are going to now discuss some wins. So we have a very exciting group win this time. And that is that we officially launched the Ladybug merch store. Yay. Whoop, whoop. So you can buy if you want to support us and you want to have stickers and mugs and shirts. And we're going to have all kinds of really awesome stuff available for you. We ship to all but six countries around the world, I believe, and shipping is very affordable, you can visit our merch store at shop.ladybug.dev. That is awesome. Very excited for this. Very excited for this. I just want to give Kelly props because she did this, and I want to learn how she made this merch store. Uh, and props to you because that's not a skill that I have acquired. All I do with my life now is e-commerce. So <laughs> I've now turned my, my full-time job into my side job and my side job into my side side job. So I love it, though. I love everything about e-commerce. So we're also going to share a listener win this time. And we absolutely love this one. 
John signed out of his workplace Slack during his vacation. So he completely disconnected. And I don't know about you, but that is something I very much struggle with doing. I have never done that in my entire life. (laughs) Yeah, that's Uh, wild, but super cool. So props to you. I actually, when I first started my current job, I just decided to be a rebel and I did not log into my work Slack on my phone. And uh, it's been nine months and I still haven't. (laughs) That's That's amazing. Yeah, nobody's yelled at me, so I guess it's cool. Awesome. So if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to tune in this Thursday for part two for a bonus episode. We're going to talk all a little bit more in depth on some uh, additional CSS awesomeness, (laughs) whatever you want to call it. Make sure you follow us on Twitter for updates and you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you enjoyed today's episode. And each week we're sending a listener from Twitter some stickers for giving us a little shout out. So if you want some free stickers, you know what to do. So thank you so much for listening. 